Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa. Amanda Machaka and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, African leaders call for action against slave trade in Libya and U.S. urges all nations to cut ties with North Korea. In economics news, EU supports Africa's call for new model of partnership. And in sports news, FIFA says there is no widespread doping in football. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Mohamed Faki, has urged delegates attending the 5th AU-EU Summit and Wayne Cote d'Ivoire to find solutions to reports of the auctioning of African migrants in Libya. Some of these migrants have fled their countries due to wars and conflicts, but last week CNN claimed to have witnessed some of them sold at an auction outside of the Libyan capital Tripoli. Speaking through an interpreter, Faki says this cannot be allowed. How long are we, we and you, going to watch this tragedy unfold? Insensitive, helpless, inactive, paralyzed. I speak to you horrified and haunted like many other citizens of the world by the images of African migrants auctioned as slaves on the Libyan territory. Our summit must be the starting point for resolute action aimed at finding a response to this tragedy and to the sources of the anxieties of our youth. South Africa's ambassador to the AU Ndumi Sunchinga has warned against Libya, accusing Libya of practicing slavery. Says the world has to be sensitive to the fact that Libya has a number of militia groups that will take advantage of the collapsed state in Tripoli. When we are talking about slavery, I think we need to emphasize that it is not the Libyan state that is responsible, but these different militias. So we must find a way of discussing this because we must also be sensitive to the fact that the state in Libya is almost collapsed. Different areas of Libya are run by different militias. So when we are talking about slavery, I think we need to emphasize that it is not the Libyan state that is responsible, but these different militias. So we must find a way that will not be naming and shaming Libya. Human Rights Watch has condemned a series of summary executions of dozens of people in areas of eastern Libya under the control of controversial Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar. The New York-based watchdog called on Haftar's Libyan National Army to make good on a promise to investigate the latest killings and to hand over a suspect wanted by the International Criminal Court in connection with previous executions. Police discovered the bodies of 36 men, all of them executed near El Abia, east of Libya's second city of Benghazi, last month. 
Zimbabwe's former Vice President Pegeze Lampoku has reportedly been given up to Friday to leave Botswana by President Ian Khama's government. According to NewZimbabwe.com, Poku, a member of the Generation 40 that was backing Grace Mugabe, left Zimbabwe on an official visit to Japan before the military took over the country. He did not return to Zimbabwe but instead flew to a government house in Khabarone in Botswana. A highly placed Botswana government source says President Hama's government has had enough of Mpoku's stay in the country and has given him an ultimatum to leave by the 1st of December. And finally, Britain has criticized U.S. President Donald Trump after he used his Twitter account to share three anti-Muslim videos posted by a member of a British far-right group. The videos posted by Britain First Deputy Lady Jada Franson appeared to show Muslims committing violent acts. The spokesperson for the British Prime Minister Theresa May said it was wrong for Trump to have retweeted them. However, White House spokesperson Sarah Sanders defended President Trump. I think that both Theresa May and a lot of the other world leaders across the world know that these are real threats uh, that we have to talk about. I think Europe has seen that a lot firsthand and um, something the president wants to continue to talk about and continue to make sure that we're dealing with. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The fifth AU-EU summit has got underway in Ivory Coast with calls for action against slave trade taking place in Libya, taking the center stage. The meeting brought together over 50 African leaders and their 28 EU counterparts under under one roof to discuss challenges facing both continents. These range from trade and investment to peace and security, as well as issues of migration and human rights. Ndebo Mokobo has more. Calls for a decisive action on the slave trade of African migrants in Libya featured prominently at the opening of the 5th AU-EU summit in Ivory Coast commercial capital Abidjan. The top brass of the EU delegation was led by President of the European Commission, John Tlat Yanker, Germany's Angela Merkel and France Emmanuel Macron, while Africa head Musa Mohamed Faki, who is the chair of the AU Commission, and President Jacob Zuma of South Africa, among others. Speaking through an interpreter, Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara said the Abidjan gathering should be a watershed moment for the AU-EU relations. Abidjan should be the point of departure of a strategic partnership that is be, uh, between Europe and Africa. And it is this point of departure which saw calls for action to be taken against what has been described as slave trade in Libya of African migrants. And the chairperson of the AU Commission, Musa Mohamed Faki, weighs in. How long are we, we and you, going to watch this tragedy unfold? Insensitive, helpless, inactive, 
paralyzed. I speak to you horrified and haunted like many other citizens of the world by the images of African migrants auctioned as slaves on the Libyan territory. Our summit must be the starting point for resolute action aimed at finding a response to this tragedy and to the sources of the anxieties of our youth. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres is also outraged. Excellence. Your Excellency, the recent atrocious uh, uh, pictures of migrants sold in Libya recall the urgency of action. Migrants are challenges but also opportunities uh, for development, the promotion of decent work and uh, enhanced collaboration. And also cooperation policies for development should contribute to afford people the opportunity to find fitting future in their countries. These conditions are essential uh, to effectively uh, combat uh, traffickers and smugglers, the most horrible criminals of our times. The EU, which has welcomed the redefining of relations with the African Union, said events of migrants should not drive the wedge between the two continents. President of the European Commission, John Claude Juncker, said they want a redefined model of relationship between the AU and the EU in order to address the developmental challenges in both continents. We, the Europeans, we have not come here to, that is just for concert, but uh, uh, to teach any lesson to anybody. We have come in order to reactivate and uh, that is our partnership that is on equal footing and that is the mobilization of the additional financial resources and it is in this uh, area where we have decided to act by having developed an external investment plan for Africa likely to mobilize 43 billion euros of investment by 2020. Meanwhile, South Africa used the occasion to lobby the EU countries through the president of the EU Commission to support the country's aspiration to be elected as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council for the period 2019-2020. to The summit ends later this afternoon. I am Tebo Mokobo of Abidjan in Ivory Coast. Young people are the focus of this year's African Union and European Union summits in the West African nation of Ivory Coast. Investing in youth for a sustainable future is the theme for the summit in the economic capital Abidjan. Many think that's just another way of saying how to address the migrant crisis. Germany's Angela Merkel and France Emmanuel Macron are there along with 81 other heads of state. The BBC's Tamerson Ford reports from Abidjan. This is where it's all happening, at Hotel Ivoire on the edge of the Abrier Lagoon. Presidents, prime ministers, banks, policymakers, they're all here saying the right things. Young people are our future, young people need jobs, young people need investing in. But the question everyone wants answers to here is how to keep these young people from making the deadly journey to Europe. At the main university campus, students take advantage of the shade under the tall palm trees. 60% of the population across Africa is under 25. In fact, Africa is the continent with the highest number of young people in the world. And it's getting worse, not better. The number of young people is expected to double in the next decade. Fulgen Zassi is the head of the Student Federation in Ivory Coast. We have more than 5,000 students who leave university every year, he says, but less than 5% of them find jobs. No wonder young people are leaving in droves, chasing a better life in Europe, he says. 
Kokodi Market, a tiny glimpse of chaos in one of the chicest areas of the city. It's also where people work under the radar, with no fixed job or income. It's a life without insurance, no safety net. More than two-thirds of young people in Africa work in this informal economy. 20-year-old Natalie Daga has a colourful array of fruit and vegetables in front of her. This is how she makes a living. But her dream, she says, is to become a tailor. I left school at the age of seven, she says. I want to open a sewing workshop, more than one in fact, but I don't have the money to do that. We're asking the world to help young people here. The manicured gardens of the summit venue couldn't be more different to Natalie's life. The future of young people, like Natalie, is what the European Investment Bank is here to talk about. They're announcing new loan agreements across Africa, specifically targeting youth entrepreneurship. Werner Hoyer is the bank's president. We must get away from this donor-recipient mentality. We must go to real partnerships. And this is, unfortunately, only after the pressure of the migration crisis now possible. And forging these partnerships is now the name of the game. And a financial institution like ours is challenged to bring about a significant contribution to that because investment needs are enormous. But is investment and new loan agreements really going to halt the migrant crisis? I believe it can bring about a significant contribution, but I don't think that it will be the, the, the sole uh, cure of, of, of the temptations. The one thing is quite clear. Without having a perspective or each and every individual to develop his or her own business here on the ground to develop his or her life uh, in an environment that is worthwhile living in, it will not stop migration. Hundreds of thousands of young Africans make the treacherous trip to Europe every year, risking their lives to chase a dream that doesn't exist. Some are escaping atrocities, but many, like those from Ivory Coast, are simply aspiring to a better life. They're economic migrants. If their situations at home don't change this is only going to get worse. That report by the BBC's Tamazon Ford in Abidjan. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on 277 Six three zero zero three three two seven, or send an SMS on two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Channel Africa from an African perspective. The United States has warned that if war comes in the Korean Peninsula, North Korea would be utterly destroyed. Washington's envoy Ambassador Nikki Haley was addressing members of the UN Security Council during an emergency session after Pyongyang fired its 19th ballistic missile this year, the latest in a string of provocations in contravention of several Security Council resolutions. The United States also issued a call on all member states to cut off all ties with the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Ambassador Nikki Haley called the DPRK a growing threat after its latest intercontinental ballistic launch. 
and placed the continental United States within range. She called for drastic measures. The continuing development of these missile systems demands that countries further isolate the Kim regime. So today, we call on all nations to cut off all ties with North Korea. In addition to fully implementing all UN sanctions, all countries should sever diplomatic relations with North Korea and limit military, scientific, technical, or commercial cooperation. They must also cut off trade with the regime by stopping all imports and exports and expel all North Korean workers. Despite referring to the most impactful sanctions already imposed on any country in a generation, the U.S. envoy called on China by name to show leadership and to cut off its crude oil supplies to North Korea. Haley also said that the action by the DPRK had brought the world closer to war. We have never sought war with North Korea, and still today, we do not seek it. If war does come, it will be because of continued acts of aggression like we witnessed yesterday. And if war comes, make no mistake, the North Korean regime will be utterly destroyed. Russia's ambassador Vasily Nebenzia called the prospects for a resolution to the crisis distant, but cautioned there was no military solution. For us it is clear that there is no military solution to the problems on the Korean peninsula. In the current conditions, we strongly call on all concerned parties to stop this spiral uh, of tension which uh, seems to follow each uh, cycle of uh, reaction and then counter-reaction. It is essential to take a step back and carefully weigh the consequences of each move to revise the policy of mutual threats and intimidation because this policy only uh, leads to a consequences or goals that are opposite of those that are sought after. He went further. We strongly urge the DPRK to stop its missile and nuclear uh, tests, and we call on the United States and the Republic of Korea to refrain from the large-scale and unplanned military maneuvers uh, that are to start at the beginning of December that will only inflame an already uh, explosive situation. Several council members called for the full implementation of the existing sanctions regime, while China gave little indication of its intentions, Ambassador Wu Haidou. The top priority is for all the parties concerned to keep restraint, implement comprehensively and strictly relevant Security Council resolutions and strive for an early resumption of dialogue and negotiations. China always stands for the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and for peace and stability on the peninsula. The latest missile launch traveled to an altitude of almost 4,500 kilometers, more than 10 times the height of the International Space Station, in a 53-minute flight. I'm Sherwin Bricepees, in New York. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa, and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, 
I am Dana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Let's go back in time to today. In 2006, Chile boy Rale Bela becomes the first black player to lead the South African Springboks against a World 15 in England. That's today in history in the year 2006. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. After more than two decades of prosecutions, it was supposed to be an historic day at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as it delivered its final ruling yesterday. But it turned into a day of high drama. The Bosnian uh, Croat general and war criminal Slobodan Pralayak drank poison in the court and then died later in hospital. The BBC's Anna Holligan reports from The Hague. The appeals had been proceeding smoothly. The judge had already upheld the original sentences given to the first two appellants. When it came to that of Slobodan Pralayak, he stood up to hear whether his original sentence of 20 years would be amended. Concerning Pralyak in all other respects, affirms the sentence of 20 years of imprisonment. But instead of accepting the ruling, Pralyak stayed on his feet and angrily addressed the court. Slobodan Pralyak is not a war criminal, he said. I am rejecting the court's ruling. The 72-year-old quickly lifted a container of liquid to his mouth and tipped his head back. The court watched, stunned and confused. Pralyak's translator told the shocked hearing what he'd done. I have taken poison. Monsieur le Président, il vient... Okay, um, uh, we suspend the... We suspend, please, the curtains... Don't take away the glass that he used when he drank something. Slobodan Pralyak was a commander of the Bosnian Croat forces. He'd been found guilty of destroying the famous Ottoman-era bridge in the city of Mostar and of persecuting Muslims. Outside the court, the ambulances arrived and fire crews wearing oxygen tanks on their backs dashed inside. This was a shocking conclusion to the work of the tribunal. It was set up by the UN before the end of the war and has surpassed expectations in dealing with every one of the 161 suspects. While it has faced allegations of bias from politicians on all sides, many of the victims believe the hearings have given them some form of justice. Now, the criminal court has itself become a crime scene. And the question is, how could an institution with such tight security and such an impressive record allow such a fatal lapse? That report by the BBC's Anna Holligan.
It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. An unconfirmed number of refugees have fled from Botswana into neighbouring Zimbabwe and Namibia following a decision by the Botswana Court of Appeal to overturn an earlier decision by the country's High Court to release them from a centre for illegal immigrants in Francistown and place them at the Dukui refugee camp. The refugees reportedly fled the country out of fear of being detained at the center for an un for an indefinite period before being deported to their home countries. For more on this, Selina Dobong spoke to advocate Morgan Museki, who represented over 163 of those asylum seekers. I was approached when these fellows were detained at the Francis Town Center for Illegal Immigrants. And I, I saw them, in my own opinion, I discovered that. It was my opinion that uh, there may be some elements of illegality, just keeping people in prison perpetually without telling them anything. What happens is that upon arrival, you apply for asylum and you are interviewed by the Refugee Advisory Committee. Once you are rejected, you are given a letter to say that you have been rejected, and that it should approach the nearest immigration office to regularize your stay in Botswana. Unlike in South Africa, when you are an asylum seeker in Botswana, you'll be interviewed from prison. You are not released. You'll be interviewed from prison, and you are rejected while you are in prison. It is only after you've been given refugee status that you'll be transferred to the Dukui refugee camp. Upon rejection, these fellows were just kept in prison. So do we they took their matter to court to say that uh, they must be released and sent to a third country willing to take them because they had not been given that opportunity. Fast forward, Mr. Museki. After the back and forth court sessions, the matter was subsequently ruled in favor of the refugees. Amongst them, children subsequently were relocated to the Duki refugee camp. Is that correct? Yes, yes they, were, they were released on the... 4th of, of July, uh, but it was not until 4th August that we, we, we got a, 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 an order from the Court of Appeal to actually release them from prison. So they were given, uh, an order was given that they must be released, but they were never released. It was we fought for their release, they were giving these excuses till uh, 4th August when the Court of Appeal released them to do, but said, well, because there's an appeal by government that the appeal should be had on the 19th of, of October. So they were released and, uh, and accommodated at the Dupi refugee camp, where some of them are now. We understand that then the Botswana Court of Appeal overturned that decision that they be released and be placed at the Dupi refugee center. Can you tell us about that? Okay. The High Court had actually released them to say that they be accommodated at the Dukui refugee camp. The High Court, not the Court of Appeal. Now, the Court of Appeal on the 4th of August uh, made an order to say that while there is this appeal, the, an order of court must be complied with because the Attorney General was not complying with the court order. So the court said, look, you have filed your appeal. You can be heard. But in the meantime... We will make an order that they be released because you can't defy a court order. So they were released and placed at the Dukui refugee camp. So it was only on the 23rd of uh, this month that we were called for judgment and uh, where the court actually upheld, that is uh, agreed with the Attorney General, that um, the, according to the Court of Appeal, 
these uh, asylum seekers are actually uh, illegal immigrants who must be detained until they are removed from Botswana. So, you see, the, the difference between Botswana and South Africa is that in South Africa, you make your application as an asylum seeker. If you are rejected, you will be given reasons for rejection and uh, given also the opportunity to appeal to the uh, Refugee Appeals Board. In Botswana, you are rejected. There is no appeal. That's the end of it. So you'll be detained pending your removal from Botswana. If you are removed from Botswana, where are you being removed to? Then is a problem. That is why they keep them in prison perpetually. Then news that emerged, Mr. Museki, is that about 30 of those asylum seekers crossed into Zimbabwe. This is out of fear of being detained at the center of illegal immigrants for an indefinite period before being deported to their home countries. Do you have any details of that incident? Well, I because Francis Town, where I am, is about 110 kilometers from the Dukui refugee camp, which is on the western side. Now, I've heard that uh, some of them actually have crossed to, to, to Zimbabwe, and they have also sent me uh, messages to say that they have crossed, not all of them. Others, about the, I think eight families have uh, uh, crossed to Namibia. So in fear that the government may uh, execute the court order by uh, ten, uh, taking them back to the Center for Illegal Immigrants. So although I advised them to... Uh, to hold on so that we get to know what the government is planning. I've, I've actually written a letter to to the government lawyers to say, uh, for them to say whether or not uh, they, they intend to return them to, to prison. But I've not yet been uh, given a reply. But they're sort of going to jail with little children, even if you don't have children, but they're sort of going back to jail, uh, haunted them. You know, it's pathetic and unfortunate that uh, uh, Botswana a country which is regarded as a citadel of democracy, I could do this to people who are running away from war-torn areas, really. That was Advocate Morgan Moseki, legal representative of a group of asylum seekers in Botswana, whose status was the subject of a recent court dispute on the line, speaking to Selina Dobong. Let's go back in time to today. In 1993, South Africa signs Investment Incentive Agreement with the United States. That's today in history in the year 1993. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Libya agrees to allow migrants who are facing abuse in its detention camps in the country to be evacuated urgently back to their home countries. Zimbabwe's former Vice President Pegeze Lampoku has reportedly been given up to Friday to leave Botswana by President Ian Khama's government. And Britain criticizes U.S. President Donald Trump after he used his Twitter account to share three anti-Muslim videos posted by a member of a British far-right group. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Minister of Tourism, Togos Lekasa, is this morning hosting a farewell breakfast event to send off about 60 South African graduates who are departing to the United States on a work exchange program in various hospitality establishments. The program provides workplace experience to youth between the ages of 19 and 29 in advanced cookery, restaurant and hotel management. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by South Africa's Tourism Minister Togozile Klasa. Good morning, Minister, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. I am so thrilled to be speaking to you. A very good morning to you. Thank you, Minister. Now, tell us briefly about this exchange program. Does South Africa also have U.S. graduates coming into the country? There are various other uh, uh, industry players who do the exchange program. It's an exchange program, uh, so uh, it affords both South Africans to uh, go and have opportunities and exposure in in America, while Americans also have opportunities to come and have exposure and, and get some experience in South Africa. So it is part of a, a skills development program where graduates uh, in the tourism industry are exposed in order for them, for them to gain experience. And at the same time, uh, some of them, when they happen to like the country, they also can look for opportunities in those respective countries. Minister, how are students uh, or, or how are um, the, the young people who are part of the program who go over to the United States, how are they selected? What's the selection process? We, the, the various companies make a call. Their partners who are also assisting them on uh, financing of them going there with packages that they will be able to afford uh, to pay back as part of uh, uh, what they would be earning when they are in those uh, uh, establishments in, in America, because they are not just there to offer their services for free. They are working uh, for a period of 12 months. Then exposure where they get uh, to know other countries, learn other cultures, also uh, you know, get, us, uh, get, get exposure on a different kind of uh, uh, mentors, that would give them uh, the kind of experience that is required. As you know, when they come out of school, they would not be having that practical experience. So we're trying to also, you know, enhance opportunities for them to gain experience that would make them to make uh, good choices with the great experience that is required. Minister, with regards to the exchange program, what are the success stories that you've seen over the years? When you get it from the horse's mouth, the, the, the young people who have been exposed, first and foremost, they come back so in love with their country because they get back to be ambassadors of South Africa because most of them have been saying to us, there's nothing like South Africa when you go out there, which is, you know, for us, the credit for South Africans who begin to love their own country. Secondly, uh, we've seen most of them starting their own businesses, 
we've seen most of them uh, being absorbed now in the industry because the, the, the establishments or hotels that they are sent to are of high standard and therefore the credentials that they bring back, they make them to be preferred than an ordinary young person who would have uh, graduated and has been seeking job uh, without having had such an, ex- an exposure. So a lot of them become changed individuals when they come back. Having learned different cultures, having got to understand what is happening in the other country, I'm telling you, we've heard such great stories coming out of them. It sounds very exciting, Minister. In terms of the numbers that are going through, is there a possibility that these numbers will be increased and uh, the companies or the private sector, um, how do they get involved? For somebody who's listening now, who's an executive and a decision maker, how do they get involved with uh, with this program, this exchange program and ensuring that more young people are um, taken through to the United States and uh, this uh, program is, is enhanced and it continues to grow? from year to year? Actually, with this uh, particular uh, uh, player with Awesome Travel, it is the second group in this uh, particular year that they are sending to America. They do call for proposals, but our department is able to be the link between those uh, uh, entities that have been doing exchange programs because critical for us is to also ensure that it's not a, a hoax, it's not a, going to place our children uh, in, in situations where they, they they become uncomfortable or they are not protected. We want them to really get the experience. So as, as, as the National Department of Tourism, we also come in to check what is it, who is involved, and are they accredited tourism partners or accredited tourism uh, uh, sector uh, participants? So, so it's very critical for us because it is it is in line with what our national department is to ensure that we expose young people or we give them skills. We check what the skills also that they are going to be getting in the in the kind of. Uh, uh, Exposure. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to leave it there for now. And all the best. And we look forward to um, having some of those uh, young people or the youth who have gone through um, to the United States as soon as they come back to just sort of give us feedback and give us a feel of uh, what they learned there. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that um, it becomes a patriotic um, um, issue when they come back and, and they love their country even more and uh, everything that they've learned. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. Thank you so much. I hope to link you up with uh, some of the young people uh, as I would be interacting with them right now. That would be great, Minister. Thank you so much. That was South Africa's Minister of Tourism, Tokozile Klasa, joining us on the line. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa.
For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Rishine Africa or at Channel Africa One. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Channel Africa from an African perspective. SADC and the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, will hold the full Army Worm Stakeholders Meeting in Johannesburg. The two-day meeting brings together representatives of member states, donors, academia, research organizations and development partners. The full Army Worm, a transboundary pest that is difficult to manage and first reported in southern Africa in late 2016, continues to cause damage to maize and other crop in the region. For more on this meeting, Wandile Kalipa spoke to David Piri, FAO's sub-regional coordinator for Southern Africa. The whole idea is for all stakeholders involved in the FAO response to the implementing on the ground, especially with regard to the country, will be there to compare notes. That is the whole essence of the meeting, to coordinate our effort, know where, how far we've gone and what is still remaining to be achieved. What would you say has been the progress so far in dealing with this full army worm? So far made a lot of progress, sensitizing so particularly with respect to how for armyworm to be managed. The important thing is for armyworm is now here in Southern Africa for the first time. It is now going to be here to stay. We cannot eradicate it. So we have to find a way of managing it in the best way possible. That's the first. The second thing is that I know that governments have been trying very hard to control for armyworm using all sorts of pesticides. Some of them that have not been tested before. We think this is very dangerous. We think that it is important that government try to look at the test side. We are encouraging government to fast track the process of registering biopest sites where they exist, as well as self-test and avoid using energy sites that maybe they might have used in the past for the African armyworm. It doesn't necessarily mean that if they worked for African armyworm in the past, that this test site will also use effectively control armyworm. In fact, what we are worried about is the fact that the four armyworm might develop resistance and also the pesticides increase damage to the environment as well as to human health. So we really ask that communities think very carefully before the pesticides that are currently on the market for the control of armyworm. Now you're talking about the issue of the use of pesticides. Has there been any form of pesticide in particular that has been manufactured to deal with this fall armyworm? There have been pesticides have been used in the Americas, but none that we know that has been used effectively and efficiently within the South African country. Now, the whole idea for this meeting is also to share experiences with regard to the research that has gone into this up to now, particularly by the Agricultural Research Council of South Africa and the other research to see if we can now but there is one pesticide that we need for the control for other ones. Now, I don't know pesticides here. We do know that biopesticides and biological pesticides have been known to be very effective. And in fact, this is why we are also appealing to, to countries to accelerate the process of registration in their country of these very safe biopesticides. 
Would you say that the partnership for fall armyworm response, uh, if it outbreaks uh, again, would it be more efficient than the first time when it started showing itself in other areas of the region of Southern Africa? No, absolutely. I think the four armyworm attack last year in particular took us by surprise. And I think this season we're better prepared for it. And as time goes on, I think we get more experience on how to resolve it. The problem is that the visual impact of the four animals in the field is frightening. But there has been a tendency for farmers just to try anything. But I think we're moving in a direction whether more and more we should be able to manage four animals, just like we've managed with other pests in the previous. Talking about the safeguarding of food security and livelihoods in the region of Southern Africa and the continent at large, how are we going to be able to deal with that situation? Now, there are many factors that do affect our food security, including floods in some places or drought in others. But the existence of food and then bringing new pestilences like the four armament, except this situation is even worse. So we are worried about the of four armament on food security because actually last year, for example, they were significant yield decreases due to four and at different country levels. However, for some farmers, 75% or 95% wiped out. For those particular farmers, it was before AMLOM made a difference. So I think we have to look at it not only also at national or national level. We also have the of different households that have been affected by food losses due to four annual. That was David Peary, the UN Food and Agricultural Organization sub-regional coordinator for Southern Africa, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. It is 8.45 and our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, has committed the European Union countries to support Africa's call to have a redefined model of partnership between the two continents. He was speaking at the opening of the fifth AU-EU summit underway in Cote d'Ivoire. African leaders say they want an interdependent relations with EU countries to ensure shared growth and prosperity. Speaking through an interpreter, Juncker says they want the AU-EU relations to address Africa's challenges. We, the Europeans, we have not come here to that is just for concert, but uh, uh, to teach any lesson to anybody. We have come in order to reactivate and uh, that is our partnership that is on equal footing and that is the mobilization of the additional financial resources and it is in this uh, area where we have decided to act by having developed an external investment plan for Africa likely to mobilize 43 billion euros of investment by 2020. 
Three leaders in South-South Corporation, together with 33 million U.S. dollars in contributions, are helping 15 of the least developed countries in the world move ahead with achieving the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. India, Brazil and South Africa, three nations from different economies and different continents, launched the latest IPSA Fund report on Monday, which helps developing countries advance their goals in partnership with the United Nations. South Africa's ambassador to Turkey, Bule. Isaac Mulefani explains. Two weeks ago, the surrogate currency bond note was trading at 80% against the greenback US dollar, while its prices of basic commodities were increasing sharply. All this was happening on the backdrop of some speculations and panic among citizens due to political tensions. As the euphoria of Robert Mugabe's resignation begins to die down in Zimbabwe, the black market exchange rates for the American dollar and the bond notes have begun to crumble. During the height of a military intervention, the price of basic commodities went up and share prices on the stock exchange dropped. Samuel Muchema reports from Harare. Two weeks ago, the surrogate currency bond note was trading at 80% against the greenback U.S. dollar while its prices of basic commodities were increasing sharply. All this was happening on the backdrop of some speculations and panic among citizens due to political tensions. The alleged tensions were caused by the axing of the former Vice President Emerson Mnangagwa with Mugabe and his wife accusing him of factionalism. A week later, the economy has begun to respond with exchange rates on the black market dropping. Zambia expects to host a mission of the International Monetary Fund before the end of the year and hopes to have a 1.3 billion US dollar loan deal in place in early 2018. Speaking on the sidelines of a mining conference, Treasury Secretary Fred Sinyamba said Africa's number two copper producer was on a mission to cut debt and would consider additional borrowing to plug financing gaps only if terms were favorable. Zambia and the IMF agreed in October to chart a new path towards debt sustainability after the IMF delayed the conclusion of talks saying it was at high risk of debt distress. And Burundi's tax revenues have risen 18% year-on-year in the January to September period. The age-dependent East African nation relies on domestic tax collection and modest revenues from coffee and tea exports. This after key donors such as the European Union cut direct financial support of accusations of human rights violations and a crackdown on opponents, which Burundi rejects. State spending for 2018 will be funded 80% from domestic resources. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.66 South African rand, 10.27 Botswana Pula, and 10.10 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 74 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,284 and platinum at $943 per ounce. And the price of Prankluder is at $63.43 a barrel. That's the latest business news. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
In this hour, we begin with football news, where football's governing body, FIFA, has moved to reassure football fans it will not manipulate the World Cup draw on Friday to favor certain teams. Former FIFA president Seb Blatter claimed last year that some European football draws have been fixed in the past with the use of hot and cold balls. UEFA called the claims completely absurd, and Blatter stressed heated balls didn't exist at FIFA draws. Russia was drawn against Peru in the only rehearsal filmed before the media. Former Manchester United striker Diego Forlan, who will help the draw groups, also attended the rehearsal. Ahead of the 2018 World Cup draw in Moscow tomorrow, Nigeria Football Federation President Amu Jupinik has maintained he is open to any group the Super Eagles will be drawn in. Nigeria will know their World Cup first round opponents on Friday when the draw is conducted in Moscow, Russia. The Eagles are likely to be drawn in a tough first gr- round group in Russia 2018 after they were seeded in Port 4, made up of the eight weakest teams in the 32 team championship. Pinnick, who will lead a nine man delegation from Nigeria to the draw, says any team that qualifies for the World Cup is potentially capable of winning the World Cup. There is no weak team among the teams that qualified. And in local football in South Africa, Obrimudiba scored the only goal of the game as South African side Supersports United beat Ajax Captain 1-0 in an upside premiership clash at Mbombela Stadium in South Africa's Mpumalanga province last night. Eric Tingler's troops bouncing back to winning ways following defeat in the 2017 CAF Confederations Cup final this past weekend moved up to 10th place on the lock standings. Ajax Cape Town remain in the 14th spot and in deep trouble. And Tokyo Governor Yuriko Koike and fans gathered underneath the Tokyo Sky Tree to celebrate 1,000 days to go to the opening of the 2020 Paralympic Games. The city's landmark was lit up in the tree, Agitos, colored red, blue and green, symbolizing the Paralympic Games. The 2020 Summer Paralympics will be held in the capital from the 25th of August to the 6th of September 2020, the second time the city will host the event. Here is the president of International Paralympic Committee, Andrew Parsons. We still have a thousand days to go, so it's time to focus. We are changing the organization now to a delivery mode. Uh, so it's fundamental that you keep the focus. The IPC is right behind you. The Paralympic movement is right behind you. We all have high expectations on the Tokyo Games, but we are 100% sure that you can deliver. In golf news, as we wrap up, Tiger Woods makes another return to competitive golf this week. And despite 10 months on the sidelines recovering from a fourth back surgery, the 14-time major winner's goal remains the same, to win. I just really want to be able to compete this week, play all four days, and give myself a chance on that back down on Sunday to win this thing. Let me play this, this event and see what I can and can't do. I'll, I'll have a better understanding once I'm in game speed. I know I, I've always hit it harder come game time because of adrenaline, and I'm looking forward to it, and I'm also looking forward to see how I feel. I miss playing golf for fun. <laughs> Go out there and hit and giggle and play for some denominations and, and have a good time. I had done that in two years. Uh, I played nine holes here and 18 holes here, and then I had to take three days off because my back was killing me. And I hadn't been able to play fun golf like that with my friends in such a long time. Uh, forget being competitive. And finally, the funeral service of the SABC and TV 
and radio sports commentator Gabo Clement Manyapelo will be held today at Northwest University Great Hall in Mahikeng Campus, South Africa's Northwest Province. Manyapelo passed on last week after a long illness. Manyapelo, who had over 30 years of service, was also known as an anchor of a popular morning show on Mutsuiding FM at SABC. Affectionately known as CC, he was a legend for his long service and in-depth knowledge on football matters. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. African leaders call for action against slave trade in Libya and U.S. urges all nations to cut ties with North Korea. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Selina Ndobong, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.